Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11, as well as some other texts, titled it here in my notes, uh, Humble Servant, and that can mean either Christ, or that can mean us, as we look to Christ as our example. Verse 1, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tenderness and mercies, then fulfill my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Do not look each man upon his own things, but each man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of heavenly ones, of earthly ones, of ones under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, so that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Among these you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, so that I may rejoice with you in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, nor labored in vain. I'm going to speak to you this morning about the subject of humility using this text and some others. We're going to speak about our humility toward God, the humility of Christ as our example, which is in our text, and our humility toward one another. All three very important subjects, some dependent on others of those three things that I mentioned. Now we're going to talk a little bit about some total depravity. I think most of you are aware of what that is, and we'll get into more of that as we go along. But by nature, and when I use that phrase by nature, what I mean is automatically, we are at an automatic disadvantage because of who we are when it comes to this subject. We are inherently selfish. We are inherently proud. 
we are always thinking of number one, which to us is us. We now know who number one is. It's Christ, the preeminent one. We have the verse on the back there to remind us that in all things he might have preeminence. So this is our battle. This is the struggle between the flesh and the spirit of Christ having preeminence and our old idea of us being number one, full of selfishness, pride, and uh, thinking too highly of ourselves. And I've said in times past that um, the free will trinity is me, myself, and I. And that idea actually directly opposes the great I am, the Lord Jesus Christ. Showing meekness, respect, compassion, forgiveness, love. These things are a very, very basic mindset to a healthy relationship with people in general. And humility is a very big part of that, especially in the church. And that's primarily I'm bringing this message to the church, those that are in this local body that are believers. And if this church is to function, function well, then the ministry of this church must know how to treat each other. And this humility is key in knowing how to treat one another, Christ being our example. We must learn some things about who God is, who we are, and our place in this life. We all have a place. You know, some people use that idea authoritatively over people. One of my relatives had a dog, and um, there was a code word. She would just say place, and the dog would hunker down and be submissive or whatever. And I'm not talking about, the, Andy read the warning there in uh, Peter about elders suppressing people, lording over them. So we're exposing that. We're not promoting that. But there is a voluntary humility that we all must have. And, of course, we just read that it's God that works in us, both the will and do of his good pleasure. We have to be reminded and we have to learn and go into depth about and see examples about and, and even have ourselves exposed from time to time so that we can learn, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I shouldn't have said that and kind of back up and try to have our mind renewed by the word of God to go forward and um, be corrected in the way that we deal with anybody. And if we don't listen to God's word on these things, I'm not going to stand up here and give you some Dr. Phil or Joel Osteen steps or methods. That's not what I'm here for. I'm telling you what the Word of God says about this subject. But if we don't submit to the Word of God on this subject, then the church will be just dysfunctional. It'll be dysfunctional. And I think most of you know the way that my brain works. I'm surprised that I am not a lot of times in a mental institution because of the way certain things have to be ordered in my mind. And I'm into function. And I think probably most people in general are into things should function right. So especially the church should not be dysfunctional. And we look to Christ our head for the answers. And in our text, it, it sure does give us some answers. 
in this subject, I kind of alluded to, I'm not giving a Joel Steen or Dr. Phil or, or whoever type answer. We've, we've got to be constantly reminded that the Bible alone is the word of God. And the Bible has the monopoly on the truth. There's no authority outside the scripture. I don't care how many confessions of faith you've memorized. I don't care what theologian you say is that you think is so great. The Bible alone is the word of God, and it has a monopoly on the truth, and that's where we go for our authority. We are never encouraged, Scripture even warns about, seeking counsel or wisdom from the world. The wisdom of the world, but rather, what does God say? That's what we have to ask. What does God say? Scripture alone, in other words, for our answers and our authority. And me personally, I just kind of said it a second ago about the way I think, and I'm surprised I am not insane at this point, about the way I, I want things to be perfect in my own mind, just the way that I think. I want to think perfectly. And when I don't think right, of course, I don't physically beat my head against anything, the wall or anything, but this is part of my struggle in this world in the flesh that I see how things should be and they're not. And it affects me. Even in my preaching and teaching on a certain subject every week, it doesn't matter what it is. There's there's always things that later I could have said and even before when I studied that I wanted to say. And there's always, no matter how much, I mean, we only got so much time. There's always something more to say because of the depth of God's word. It's God's word is not shallow. There's always more to be said. So I struggle to take things that I see need to be said. And, you know, I preach to myself every week. I think because I have problems, I think some other people have similar problems. You know, I've talked with people. They come to me and say, man, I've got... I've got this issue, and uh, they'll explain it. I'll say, you think you're dealing with this problem? Welcome to the club. And once they get talking, because they're afraid to talk to somebody else, they realize, well, I see in the Scripture that a lot of people had this different problem because it's mentioned in the Scripture written to church people that believe the gospel. So this life is... As the scripture says, it's a vapor. It's like a vapor. It appears for a minute and vanishes away. It's short. It's full of trouble. I know we have struggles. I know it's it's not against God's law to show compassion, show love, show mercy. And keep in mind that when we come into this that door right there and we deal with one another, that we get our mind out of ourselves and look on the things of others, as our text said, Remembering that, you know what, this person might be going through the worst time in their life right now. So how we deal with them is going to, as the scripture has said, and we've taught many times before, we're talking about edifying, building up people by the truth of the gospel. There's a time, as Solomon thinks said, there's a time for everything. Time to laugh, time to cry, time to do this, that, and the other. So there's a time to joke around and play around. There's another time for seriousness. And uh, but we have to be sensitive to the way that we, we don't know how people are. We don't know what they're thinking. And we need to do that with the word of God as our authority. And as we use the word of God to help people with the truth every week. So there's always, always more that can be said. 
But as little as I do say every week, it's only usually like 45, 50 minutes. I would hope that our minds should be renewed. That's what the scripture says, that we renew our minds with the word of God. And as I've said before, outside of here, that's your guy's responsibility to be involved and, and have your minds renewed in the truth of, of the scripture. We are to not just worship here. Worship is 24-7. Prayer is not just here. We only had one prayer right here, Andy, lesson prayer. I hope that's not all the prayer you're involved with throughout the week. Paul said pray without ceasing. This means we don't clock in and out. We're constantly thinking and meditating on the word of God and having communion with God, even though we don't officially stop and get in some position to uh, to pray to God. We're always open and communicating with God, no clocking in and out. Point number one, our humility toward God. Now, as we study the attributes of God, we, we talk about the attributes of God a lot, and I think probably most of us could probably name a dozen just off the cuff real quick. But I'm going to name a few here in reference to this point, our humility toward God. We sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. So we know God is holy. He's perfect. He's sinless. He's other than us. And we reverence him as a result. He's righteous. He is sovereign. He's a God of justice. And this God that we're talking about, the only true God, he's always comparing himself to idols. He said, I'm God. There's none else that's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, things that have not yet happened. All my counsel shall stand. Everything else just is nothing. That God that has this character, he also has demands. This God has demands. And he has the divine right to issue forth these demands. And his demand is that if you want to be a part of him as friends, you have to be perfect, absolutely perfect all the time, every time, no exceptions. So seeing and acknowledging that fact, it's to a human being, it's, it's bad news. It is bad news. Apart from knowing Christ, it's bad news. Now, having said that, I mean, you can run things by there. Use that as a filter, run things by there. And ask the question, do you keep the law? <laughs> no. I mean, are you perfect all the time, every time? No, you're never perfect. Just nip that in the bud right there. You are never perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that has ever kept any law. This is the God that we're dealing with. So when we see this, this should be where we see reverence toward God. And have a reverential fear where the scripture talks about fearing God. God's people fearing God. This is what this is talking about. A reverence for who he is, his name, his word, everything about who he is. We are to reverence the glorious majesty displayed in who this God is. I heard it defined once that a healthy, godly fear is this, for being afraid of, of having the need to be accepted outside of Christ. If you are not accepted in the beloved, there's no other way. You're in trouble. If God conditions his love toward you because of you, you're in trouble. You're not going to make it. I'll tell you that right now. 
So there's absolutely no hope at all inside of us, in other words. We must always and only be accepted in the beloved, in Christ. That's the only place we can be accepted. So obviously this leads us to another sub-point under this. I pretty much already said it. We are nothing in ourselves. We are nothing in ourselves. This is total depravity. We know that in Adam, we are sinners legally. We're legally condemned. And that's our first problem. That is the ground of our condemnation is the sin of Adam imputed to our account. That is the very ground of what total depravity is. Adam is our federal head. When, when Adam sinned, it was accounted to us that we had sinned. The fruit of that is that we are sinners by nature. We have a corrupt nature. And that we are born in a corrupt nature, in sin. And the things that we do because we are perverted at the root, we are bent. Our nature determines how we act. That's who we are by nature. We are sinners by nature, legally and spiritually. We are corrupt. And, of course, then when we learn as we go along and our, you know, our conscience starts bothering us when we learn. And then we see clearly that we are sinners if we have an ounce of honesty in us. We are sinners by experience, willful, habitual practice of sin. A lot of reformed Calvinists, sovereign grace won't lie about it, about all that because they haven't been humbled. Go ahead and turn to Romans 3. Romans 3 is talking about all sinners by nature right here. Before justification, this is what everybody, without exception, looks like. Romans 3 and verse 10. These are the four universal nuns that you should have memorized. Romans 3.10. As it is written in the Old Testament, there is none righteous, no, not one. All people by nature are void of a righteousness that answers the demands of God's law and justice. Everybody without exception. That's total depravity in one sentence right there. So we're in need of a righteousness. We're in need of justification because we're condemned. Verse 11, there is none that understands. Because we are dead spiritually, we have no understanding of the truth. We don't. We can't even deal with God because we don't know how to think about him and approach him in our minds to even know what he wants or demands or what the remedy is to get to him. We don't understand it. By nature, all we can do is that satanic idea, that evil idea, is to try to establish a righteousness of our own. We think that's the very best thing that we can do, and that's the very worst thing we can do. So we have no understanding. Secondly, in that verse 11, there is none that seeks after God. And there goes that typical idea of free will out the window there. there by nature, we, we don't seek God. We might seek a God that we've developed out of our own imagination, that we've made up, that suits us. Just like God said in, in one of the Psalms, he says, you thought I was altogether likened to yourself. Which, of course, didn't meet the standard. So we, by nature, we go to a spiritual smorgasbord and we go to the buffet and we pick out things that suit us. Or we think that we can do. 
which we never can anyway. But we, we pull ourselves to say, okay, now I've created this God in my mind, in my e- image, imagination, and I'm going to worship that God. We seek after that God. We're comfortable with that God. People create denominations after those type gods. Verse 12, they have all gone out of the way. They have together, even collectively, together, they become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Christ himself said, as he was talking to some religious people, he said, there's there's none good but God. You might know some people that are decent people and good according to your standard, but when you put the standard of who God puts a standard, can't even use the word. There is none good, no, not one. And if you go down to verse 23, it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. That standard of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the glory of God. So all you have to do is cut to the chase and say, do you meet the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? It's a rhetorical question. So humility starts with knowing these things. You know, the microwave, Pop-Tart, evangelistic method of just telling people they're a sinner, getting them to admit that, which doesn't match with what we talked about. You know, just lightly, yeah, I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. Do you believe this? Yes. Do you believe this? Yes. Now repeat this prayer. Yes. You know, you're saved. That's typical, quote unquote, evangelical baloney. But knowing these things, like the scripture had just stated them, as taking man as low as God has taken him, they are totally depraved. They're not righteous at all. They're not good at all. They don't seek God at all. They don't understand God at all. Anything that is substandard below that is false religion. And it's the lie of Satan, thou shalt not surely die. So let's just offer up a reminder that these things are what the God that cannot lie says about you personally. Everybody here personally. And says it upon authority of his, of his word. So when we hear that, it's humbling to you to know that this is who we are. But so the question is, are you independent of this description? Are you looking at these things we just read about concerning total crab and say, well, I need just give me some time. I can I can tell you how I'm different. (laughs) Come on, man. Stop. (laughs) The scripture later on says that. Stop. That all mouths may be shut, to be shut up to mercy, to the righteousness of God. That's what the law is for, is to shut up men's mouths. You're not different than anybody else. You're not better than anybody else. You don't do it a little bit better than anybody else so that we may have to adjust this language in Romans that we just read about. God, God doesn't allow that. You're not going to get God to step back and scratch his head and say, well, maybe I was wrong about those few people. By nature, 
everybody is the same. I didn't have this in my notes, but I thought about this this week about the stupidity that's going on in different cities in some of these uh, marches that are going on where you have these two extreme groups that represents nobody I even know and they're hating on each other and the media is saying look at this look at this and they're creating this this false narrative of this is what everybody thinks right I tell you what they don't think is right here what I just read about that everybody is totally depraved and that nobody has a ground to stand and say but I'm different or we're different God's word shuts the mouths of the lies. So have you been made willing to submit to the truth of, of who you are by nature? Who you are automatically or naturally because of sin? This basic knowledge and, and the growing in it is really a foundational source or a tool that we can use to not only us learn, but how to treat other people. And we have to be reminded of it. We have to be reminded of it. If we know that that we ourselves personally, not looking at anybody else, if we know in and of ourselves, just us, are nothing according to God's word, then how in the world are we going to go about to think more highly of ourselves than we should? It, it doesn't match. It doesn't match at all. There's lesson after lesson after lesson in the scripture. We don't have anywhere near time to, to bring them out. We'll look at one. Go to Daniel chapter 4. And just look at King Nebuchadnezzar just briefly. I'm sure we could do a few messages on this, but I just want to read some verses and just mention lightly. The text pretty much says what the issue is. This king who was powerful and great. Thought a little too highly of himself than he should have. And God teaches him something here. Verse 30, Daniel 4. The king spoke and said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, capital M, capital H, talking about himself, God talking, the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. The same hour, the thing was fulfilled on Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and he ate grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of the heavens until his hair had grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. 
and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lives forever, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his rule is from generation to generation. And all the people of the earth are counted as nothing. Did you get that? That includes us. And he, God, does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the people of the earth. And none can stop his, can strike his hand or stop his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? And, and at that time, my reason returned to me and the glory of my kingdom and my honor and brightness returned to me. And my advisors and my lords came to me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment. And notice this, all those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I know verse 35 is a pretty major verse that a lot of us go to to express the sovereignty of God, and rightly so. And we are made to see it without going through what Nebuchadnezzar had to go through to see it. And we are reminded by text after text after text in the word of God that his sovereignty, his absolute sovereignty, not only in creation and providence but in salvation, is clear. And he rules. We are made to see that. And we're thankful for that. And that puts us in our place. I've heard it said before, what is sovereign grace? It's he's God and you're not. Simple as that. Some people use the phrase Calvinism. What is Calvinism? He's God and you're not. You get the idea. So God has everything, everything without exception at his disposal. Because of his power, you're not powerful. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. Because of his wisdom, we're not wise by, by nature. We're fools. We don't know God. We don't know the gospel. By virtue of his knowledge, he knows everything. We don't, I mean, we're just, we screw up so many times. We create our own problems because of what we don't know. And even if we knew it, we don't have the power to do it. And this, he has all things at the disposal of himself because of providence. He, he runs the show. We don't run it. And, of course, we had just mentioned he's sovereign. We're not. And you could go on and on with all of that character attributes. And he has all these things at his disposal to humble anyone that he wants for his own purpose. And he doesn't humble Everybody all at the same time. We just read in our text about every knee shall bow. Some people are going to be humbled later, which it's too late, but they're still going to be humbled. But I'm tickled to death that he has chosen to humble some of these people in this room that we may bow to him and all of his glorious, majestic character. He can use health. He can use finances. 
He can use your mental stability to humble you. And don't say never. It would never. This will never happen. I would never do this. I don't think God would ever do this. I don't think this other person would ever do this to me. You better be quiet. <laughs> Especially when you talk about yourself never doing something. He, he's warned. Take heed where you stand. Lest you fall. He has all these things at his disposal to teach you your place. His primary source of showing humility is in the gospel of grace. We know this. It shows us we don't have a righteousness. And it can only be found in Christ crucified. Secondly, Christ's humility in saving his people. I'm not going to finish this. This should be the biggest part of the message. This section is what we talk about every week, I think, without exception. The humility in Christ's humility in saving his people. Now, Christ, if you haven't caught it yet, he is the opposite of us when it comes to character. He's the opposite. He's completely sinless and holy. We are utterly sinless, wicked, ungodly, and unholy. This is why we need a Savior. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. If you don't agree with that, then you, I, I, don't, I don't think you're there. <laughs> Go back in our text. Let's look at a few of those verses there, um, starting in verse 5. Philippians 2, 5. And uh, be reminded of what Christ volunteered in the covenant before the foundation of the world to do. How he was to be and act and conduct himself in his earthly ministry. What he condescended down off of the throne to have to go through to fulfill his promises in the covenant to save his people. Verse 5, Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. Christ is our topic. Who, Christ, verse 6, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was God, right? We've studied this over and over again We in John chapter 1. We looked at that real close, how that he always was God, always has been God. He's the eternal son of God. He's co-equal with the father. He has the same express image attributes of God we read in Hebrews 1. So here he is stepping down off of the throne to do this task in humility. And verse 7 goes on to tie into some of the things there in verse 6. But he, he made himself of no reputation. He took on himself the form of a servant made into the likeness of men. So as he descended down off of his throne to, to come and be uh, made flesh through the seed of the woman, and the Holy Spirit implanted the seed into Mary, the virgin. And when Christ came out, a little baby, and had to be fed, had to, be changed and all those things. Think about that humility of stepping down. The God who created every body and everything now had to go through this period, volunteered to go through this period where he had to be cared for by a sinner. He didn't stop being the eternal son of God. He was God in the flesh. So this is his condescending down into his incarnation to do this, to be this. So he didn't show off. Some Greek scholars talk about some of this language here. It says that he emptied temporarily, like emptied himself 
of the full display of his godhood. In other words, he wasn't showing off. Everywhere he went, he didn't say, I don't know if you understand it, but I am God. He said some things that were quite clear. We talked about I am. Some of the people knew what he was talking about. But he didn't stop every other sentence and say, hey, dummy, I don't, I don't know if you're hearing me clear enough. I am God. He was a common-looking person. There was no beauty in him that, that we would behold of him. He wasn't this handsome, fancy guy. He didn't. We know he didn't dress fancy. We know that the things that he did, he did everything in a, in a very humble way. He was low-key laid back until he would sometimes get a little bit boisterous on false religion. But as far as, here's what I'm getting at. If you saw a crowd of people and you saw him in the middle, you couldn't say, that's God right there. You could not do that. It was impossible. So if he wanted to make himself as, as someone with a reputation, he would make it to where if you looked in a crowd, you could spot that's God right there. But you couldn't do it. And that's the plan. That's the way it was. Part of God's sovereignty and his glory is hiding himself and hiding the truth from people. And whoever God wants to see that Christ is God, they're going to see it. And they're going to see it by what is said from the word of God. They're not going to feel it emotionally and that dictate what they believe, which, of course, religion, a lot of religion is based on that where the emotion drives the, the thought process. Verse 8, being found in, in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. What kind of death? Even the death of the cross, the worst death that could be imagined at that time, a torturous death. And he did this, of course, for his people. It's a death that he didn't deserve in and of himself. He knew that it was going to be this way. He signed up for it. He knew this was what it would take to redeem his people. So he had to go through that, and it took what? Humility. And this is the model here. This is verses 5 through verse 8. Well, verse 6 through verse 8 is showing us the exhortation in verse 5. Let this mind, just like Christ, the same mind in reference to humility, let that mind be in you. As he loved his people and gave himself for his people, cared for his people, this is the way that we are to try to deal with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a pretty high standard, right? There was a wedding a couple weeks ago, and I brought this up concerning husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's a pretty high standard, right? Let's rush on to point number three, our humility toward one another. Again, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not a suggestion at all. This is, this is what we're supposed to do. It's our reasonable service, really. It's our reasonable service. It's nothing, and I say that in reference to it's nothing special in that after you do it, we can say, ha, look what I did. Well, I mean, that's going against what we're talking about. That's not humility, that's pride. When we see someone who expresses how great that they are, 
in anything. It doesn't matter. Even even outside of spiritual things, you've you've seen people maybe on TV or in person at work. Some of your relatives maybe they'll express how great they are when it's evident that they're a lot of times embellishing what's going on in the first place. Now, what does that do in our minds? It's sickening, right? It sickens us. And God shows us part of that in us by showing us these texts about who we are and who we thought we were and who we are now and what we know we are in Christ now. He brings on that conviction that makes us side with God against ourselves, right? We make ourselves sick, in other words, sometimes when we see why did why how did I why did I think that way when I when I know what I am now? Well, God gives this increase. He's the one that teaches. It's not like you just all of a sudden um, cultivated self wisdom and now you've arrived and you saw how stupid you were and congratulations, you're going to improve out of your own inside. No, God humbles us with these truths and smacks this stuff up against our heads and it's like. Oh, it looks bad. I don't want to, I don't, that's bad, <laughs> right? We've experienced that, some of us have. And in every avenue of life, I know, I know my thoughts when I see somebody, a lot of times when somebody's in a group and they're saying something that's just so advanced in boasting, it's just extreme, and you see it, the first thing that comes to mind to me, is you idiot. You're an idiot, right? That's what I think in my mind. Next time I see him, there's that idiot, right? That's what we were. By nature, spiritual idiots. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Not good, not righteous, not seeking after God, not understanding. And and you're going <laughs> to... John MacArthur said, I don't remember a time... When I didn't believe, take that and compare it to what we're just talking about. This experience where you knew this is what you were before. And God's given you faith and a change of mind to reject that and say, that is gross. To say, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. <laughs> Give me a break. Makes no sense. I remember a time when I was a spiritual idiot and I was proud and I counted on my own righteousness and God gave me repentance from myself, my self-love, my self-righteousness and my pride. He showed me that that was wickedness and evil. I remember that time and you don't have to remember what day or hour or whatever, I'm not saying that, but you know, there's a time when you were lost and there's a point in time where God had saved you from yourself your sin so nobody wants to be around people like that 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 idea of who I said you know maybe at work or whatever that that's just got a crowd around and they're bragging about themselves and, and I know what everybody else is thinking too that are there it's like would you shut up so spiritually do we want people coming in here like that you all have met people that have all they want to do is talk about what they know about the scripture. They want to, they would just want to argue for the sake of argument and beat people, beat people down. 
And uh, they got no compassion. They got no patience. Can't be around people like that. They're not edifying at all. So these are things that the scripture states to, so that we can guard against this. Starting with ourselves. You can't have any growth, learning, take place without love and humility. And this is extreme importance with this group. This group, these people in this room that claim to believe the gospel, is to be the sanctuary. I'm not talking about this physical room. I'm not talking about this building as a sanctuary. I'm talking about God's people are to be a sanctuary set apart for God's people to gather together, to be encouraged, to love one another, to be edified. It's a safe haven from the, the garbage that's out there in the world. Let me just quote real quick a portion of a verse, a couple of verses. Matthew 18, uh, disciples were acting goofy and King Jesus said, who's greater in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, is that what it's about? Who's greater in the kingdom? Let's let's get me on that. Okay, let's learn this lesson here of the disciples early on. Um, and I, I don't know what, what they knew here, but we know that's bad, right? I hope you're at the point now where you don't even care about who's greater in the kingdom. You're just happy, tickled. You're in the kingdom, right? I'm happy my name is written in the book of life. And he talks about bringing a, bringing a child in the middle of them. And he says, uh, you know, truly, unless you're converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever shall humble himself and be like a little child, this one is greater in the kingdom of heaven. So the way up is down, right? That's an easy principle to see. And now we know that. Our motive shouldn't be, well, I want to be great, therefore I need to like come up with some humility so I can be greater. Uh, you missed the boat already. We know in Matthew 23, he had a run-in with the religious people there. In verse 5, he says, so I'm just read these real quick. He was scolding the scribes and the Pharisees, called them vipers and stuff. He said uh, in verse 5, but they do all their works in order to be seen of men. They make their phylacteries, these like fringy things on their outfits, broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. From what I understand, these things had like scripture and different things written on them where they could show off. Like say, hey, look at me, the stuff I'm wearing, I'm religious. They love the first seats. This verse says couches at feasts when instead of clothes, the chief seats in the synagogues, which is where the important people sit. And they love the greetings in the marketplace to be called Rabbi, rabbi means teacher, master. That's like if somebody either here or maybe I went to a conference or something, they called me Scott. I said, no, hold on. I'm Pastor Price. Don't you know? <laughs> Isn't that sick? That's capital P, too. You know, see how gross that is? That's somebody lording over people like the text that Andy read. But you must not be called rabbi, for one, capital O, is your teacher, Christ, and you are all brothers. 
And call no one your father on earth, for one is your father in heaven. Nor be called teachers, for one is your teacher, even Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he who shall humble himself shall be exalted. It's, it's opposite day, right? According to Christ, which is actually the right way. And he's conforming our minds to have the mind of Christ and think like him. Because we by nature think the opposite of him, right? I also had that text that uh, Andy had read talking about God resists the proud ones and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. And then I had two other texts I'm not going to go to, but they talked about a false humility. So let's not get tangled up in a false humility. That's in, Col- that's in uh, Colossians talking about a, a taste not, touch not, handle not religion, of false humility. Which is important to be able to recognize and avoid. So I'm going to stop there. I went like way too long. I could have made it a couple messages, but any uh, questions, comments, discussion at all? Anything? All right. Next guy I wanted to share with you. Okay, good. The uh, church that I was at before, the, uh, I talked with the pastor about how we're all supposed to be preaching the gospel. And it was like me, like, you know, no one, you know, only, you know, only those that have been ordained. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, you're giving yourself a title. Yeah. I mean, we're all supposed to be out there. Yeah, that's one of the things we've, uh, in times past, we've talked a lot about here. And uh, uh, I know some preachers that think like that. And uh, it's just a shame. I mean, you can't get it from the scripture. And all it does is, uh, in the end, it stifles the knowledge of God's people. It stifles their gifts. And it sets up a hierarchy in the church. And um, at times, depending on the church size and who else in the church can or can't teach, it sets up churches to when the guy dies, they scramble to try to find another pope to put in place that seemingly agreed with the last guy. And nobody in the church, they're all dumbed down. and They can't tell you what they're supposed to believe. So, I mean, yeah, good point. Uh, seen it, seen it, I've seen it. Me and um, Nathan last night were talking about this. several things connect to this, where some pastors say, I am not called to explain, I'm only called to proclaim. So, and I've heard them proclaim, I've heard some of them proclaim, and uh, it's like sound bites that People are left to define it themselves. And these type churches, the way they're set up, you're not allowed asking questions. No transparency in the ministry. You know, after church, people want to talk about, you know, basketball or politics. And um, if you talk about theology or the gospel or doctrine, you're a troublemaker, right? If you ask the pastor a question, uh, how dare you? 
who are you to ask me a question? Especially if you're a woman, right? You experience that, Charlene, at a certain place. So, and I heard last night some stories about different examples of that. And um, that means the pastor himself is not humble. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of times I get myself in trouble for bugging people too much to ask questions. I wrote an article one time for uh, the local newspaper that the ministry is a ministry of questions, right? And uh, if you're talking to somebody you're evangelizing, it's important to pretty much know they're not even going to know what questions to ask. You have to give them questions to ask you so you can answer them. But for stuff, critical issues that are going on in, in the theological landscape of the world currently, if the pastor takes those and suppresses them and doesn't tell them, doesn't give them an inkling of what's going on, it's just like turn them over to the wolves. If you know people in churches are interested in doctrinal things, and you've got stuff like Facebook and different things like that where they can get out and dabble, man, you've got to make sure that they don't get into some bad stuff. If you don't talk about and warn like, here's what this is, here's what it means. Watch out for this guy, here's what he's saying. If you don't do that, you're just like turning them over to the wolves. But kind of reminds me of the dark ages where, you know, the, the truth was hoarded and people were dumbed down. The truth, you got to free the truth up, get it out there. And if somebody comes along that's, and it might be plenty, that is smarter than me, I want to learn from them. I want to ask them questions. There's stuff I know that I'm going to say, you know what, I don't know, but I want to find out. You know, this local church, we're all in this thing together. It's not like I'm doing my thing and you're doing your thing and we're separate. Or anybody else that teaches up here. It's, there's no I in team, right? You ever hear that? <laughs> Cheesecake stuff back here. Coffee, water.